Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 9, The 800-Pound Gorilla. Who is Constantine the Great? And here we are. We have at last come to the most famous figure in the whole of the Nicene Controversy, the Emperor Constantine. There are at least as many opinions of Constantine's legacy as there are people with opinions about him. There's many an historian of ancient Rome who has hailed him as the savior of the ancient world, the man without whom Rome would have collapsed into dust far sooner than it did. His first successors presented him as a paragon of virtue, as everything an emperor should be, while the apostate emperor Julian instead portrayed him as a man given to vanity and greed. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, Constantine is revered as a saint and is given the honorary title equal to the apostles for his role in spreading the Christian faith. Yet, just last week, I listened as a professor asserted that everything, everything that was wrong in Christianity could be traced back to Constantine and his unification of state power with the church. And that professor is hardly alone in thinking so. So we make our way through the smoke and mirrors of all these varied portrayals of the man. The pertinacious propagator of Christian piety, the cynical sellout seeking only power's sustenance, the adept administrator of an ailing empire, with the same question that has bedeviled historians for centuries. Who is Constantine the Great. Let's start with what we know for sure. Constantine was born, as so many people are, into the household of a distinguished military officer and later Augustus of the West, as significantly fewer people are. Constantine's family was as skilled in governance as they were inept in picking original names for their sons. Constantine's father was named Constantius, and Constantine would name his sons Constantius II, Constantine II, Constans, and in one brief, bright, shining moment of moderate originality, Crispin. Unfortunately, all of these royals also have the poor manners to be important to our story, so we're just going to have to keep them straight as best we can. In fairness to Constantine and his family, naming his sons this way was pretty commonplace in the Roman Empire, so I will try not to be too hard on them for the ways that they are inconveniencing us. We know for sure who Constantine's family was. There is one other thing we know for sure about Constantine, which is that he was a master of propaganda. Self-promotion was kind of a necessary skill for all Roman emperors. I mean, there was no way you could rule a territory that vast without convincing people that you'd never met that you were the bee's knees, the bomb.com, the legion of the region. But the truly great Roman emperors turned propaganda into an art form, and Constantine 
was truly a great emperor. Because of his propaganda, we don't even know when he was born. He was probably born sometime in the early 270s, based on his age at later well-established events. But Constantine doesn't want us to know that. After his ascension to the throne and conversion to Christianity, he will tell groups of Christian bishops that he was only a boy when the Great Persecution broke out in the 300s, rather than the man of 30 that he likely was. This convenient fabrication allowed him to dodge uncomfortable questions about what was he doing during the Great Persecution, and why didn't he do anything to stop it? It's often said that age is just a number, and Constantine was not above picking the number that best suited his purposes. And of course, because we know for sure that Constantine was a master of propaganda, there is very little else we know for sure about him. You can never be quite certain whether Constantine is telling you the truth or just what he knows you want to hear. We do know one other thing about him, though. He was a very, very, very busy man in the years leading up to Nicaea. To understand why, we need to backtrack in our story a few decades. When Constantius was named Caesar of the West in 293, Constantine would have been about 20. And from there on, he was groomed as an emperor-in-waiting. He divided his time between military command, learning how to win the trust and loyalty of his men, and serving the imperial court to master the finer aspects of statecraft. He excelled in both, and there was every reason to believe that he would in time succeed his father in Diocletian's Tetrarchy. And then... Diocletian made what may have been the single greatest mistake of his reign. He retired and persuaded his co-Augustus in the West to retire at the same time. This left two prime Caesar spots in the Tetrarchy unfilled, and everyone assumed that one of those slots would go to Constantine. The other would likely have gone to the son of the former Augustus in the West, Maxentius, son of Maximian. Love for confusingly similar names really was rampant throughout the empire. Everybody was on board with this plan. Everyone was quite ready to put the crisis of the 3rd century behind them. Thank you very much, and have a nice, orderly succession of power. Everyone, that is, except the new Augustus in the East, Galerius. Before anyone else could make a move, Galerius named two new men to the Tetrarchy, Severus and a guy named Maximinus. Maximinus is not too important to the story, and we already have too many Max names jumping around, so I'm not going to bother you with him much. And when I do, he's simply going to be Max number three. It's not clear why Galerius chose to usurp the previous arrangement. All four of the emperors had agreed that Constantine was next in line. It may be as simple as the fact that Max number 3 was his nephew, and Severus was extremely loyal to Galerius as well. So if Galerius was trying to install puppet emperors who would let him rule the Tetrarchy with as much impunity as Diocletian had, he could not have picked better candidates. But, of course, in doing so, he left two other candidates out of the cold, and as you can imagine, Constantine and Maxentius 
didn't take news of their displacement very well. They reacted to it in almost opposite ways. And those ways reveal why almost everybody knows who Constantine is, and nobody knows who Maxentius is. In the year 305, after Galerius had appointed his two new Caesars, Constantine left Galerius's court at Nicomedia and began the journey back to his father in the West. Now, Constantius had just ascended to be the Augustus of the West, but he was also in poor health and knew that he was not long for this world. He and his son pondered what to do now that Galerius had slammed the door shut on their potential dynasty. They came up with a solution. On his deathbed, Constantius recognized his son as a member of the Imperial College, but not as a junior Caesar. Constantine would immediately take up the Imperial Purple as the new Augustus of the West. Of course, this plan flew in the face of everything Diocletian had intended. Augusti could name new Caesars, but they were never supposed to name new Augusti. You had to be promoted from within the college for that. At least, that's what Diocletian thought. But Constantine, apparently drawing on the 1997 movie Airbud for his jurisprudence, realized that there was actually no rule saying an Augustus couldn't appoint another Augustus. So after his father's death, he went around telling his troops in Gaul, Britain, and Spain that he was the new Augustus now, which they all thought was just splendid and went about hailing him as the emperor and taking orders from him and doing all the other things troops do when a new emperor comes to town. He even sent a letter to Galerius announcing his new rank, apparently without even a trace of irony. Now, we have no official record that Constantius ever recognized his son as Augustus. I think it's pretty likely that he did, but all we have is Constantine's word, and it's possible that this is yet another bit of bamboozling from a propaganda master. But either way, Constantine's genius was to realize that the belief in his legitimacy was more important than the fact of it. So he just went around acting like it was true that he was the Augustus of the West. His actions brought Galerius to the table with a compromise. Galerius would recognize Constantine as an emperor, but as a Caesar, not an Augustus. Constantine accepted. Now, less than a year after he had been unceremoniously booted from the Imperial College, here he was with the rank he had been promised from the very man who had denied it to him in the first place. Constantine had played his cards like a master, and he was only getting started. Constantine's first order of business as Caesar was dealing with the way his would-have-been colleague Maxentius had responded to the snub. Maxentius had retired to a villa outside of Rome, mostly to pout and wait for an opportunity to seize power. He didn't have to wait long. The Tetrarchy soon decided that it was time for Rome to pay the same taxes that every other city in the empire did. As you may remember, Rome had been in decline as a power center for a very long time, and new tax burdens only reminded its denizens of that annoying fact. Not being particularly keen on being treated as just another city when they were the ones who started the whole empire, many members of Rome asked if Maxentius would take up their cause. He was only too happy to accept. 
He donned the purple, but initially refused to call himself an Augustus. He preferred the title Princeps, meaning first citizen, the same title that Caesar Augustus had used way back in the first century. He apparently thought that, just like Constantine had, he could get recognition as a member of the Tetrarchy if he played his cards right. So, wielding the historic weight of Rome, he asked Galerius for recognition and was denied. Maxentius then began a rebellion against the Tetrarchy that had twice scorned him. Now, originally, Maxentius was supposed to be somebody else's problem. Galerius may have led him into the Tetrarchy, but he did not want to see Constantine's star rise. And as the junior emperor, a problem of this magnitude probably would not have gone to him anyway. So Galerius asked Severus, the new Augustus in the West, to handle the Maxentius problem. This was a very, very bad idea. It is now early 307. For context, Diocletian and Maximian have been retired for less than two years. Remember as well that Maximian is Maxentius's father. Severus set off to confront Maxentius with an army that had served his father faithfully until just two years ago. Remember how back in episode one I said that Roman armies were more loyal to commanders with proven battle experience than they were to the rule of law or principles? Yeah, that is about to become very relevant. Severus marched on Rome, whereupon Maxentius asked his dad for help. Maximian came out of retirement and appeared before his old troops, almost all of whom immediately deserted poor Severus in favor of their old commander and his son. Severus was quickly captured and beheaded. Oops. On the plus side, there's now an opening for the Augustus of the West again, and Constantine is well-positioned to take it. However, feeling that the wind was blowing in a different direction now, Constantine chose to accept the title of Augustus from the ex-Augustus Maximian rather than Galerius. The alliance helped both parties. Constantine wanted peace with his neighbors in the West, and Maxentius knew that Galerius would not take the death of Severus lying down. He needed allies. So Constantine married Fausta, the sister of Maxentius, an alliance was sealed between them. Galerius was livid. He ejected Constantine from the Tetrarchy and marched on Rome himself, only to find many of his soldiers defecting again to Maxentius's banner out of respect for his father. Like Severus before him, Galerius had to retreat in disgrace. But all was not well for the plucky rebel emperors. Having gotten a taste of power once again, Maximian decided he rather liked it. Why had he let Diocletian peer pressure him into retiring in the first place? Why should his son have all the glory? So one day, in the middle of an otherwise normal speech, he suddenly pointed to his son and claimed that he... Maxentius was responsible for all the ills of the nation. It was all his fault. Come on, soldiers, let's get the band back together again. But Maximian had miscalculated. 
Having seen Maxentius's recent victories, his soldiers were not so loyal to the old man anymore, and Maximian had to flee for his life with his tail tucked tightly between his legs. Which means that the road to Nicaea is brought to you by failed comeback attempts. Has an old friend ever swung by your house and said with absolutely no preface whatsoever, come on, we're getting the band back together? Yes? Has it ever worked out? No? Well, don't let that stop you from trying one more time. Try the failed comeback. A great way to reclaim your fading sense of importance and make a bunch of rambling speeches that only your most diehard supporters will appreciate. The failed comeback. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. At least until your former soldiers turn on you and try to arrest you for treason. Then some crying because it's over is probably in order. The Tetrarchy was now in dire straits. Rebellion, propaganda, and strife had torn the system apart. No one wanted to go back to the chaotic succession wars of the 3rd century, but no one could see a way out of them either. So Galerius and Maximian went to the one man who had gotten them out of it the first time, the retired cabbage-farming emperor Diocletian himself. Here is what happened at that famous meeting. The people begged Diocletian to come out of retirement himself and solve all their problems. That's the point at which Diocletian gave his famous quip that if they could see how good his cabbages were, they would know why he was never going to say yes to that. Instead, Diocletian, Maximian, and Galerius figured out a new strategy. Diocletian persuaded Maximian to retire, for real this time, no more helping out with his son's rebellions, not even once, not even a little bit. Galerius appointed a new emperor, Licinius, as Augustus in the West, again displacing Constantine, whom they readmitted to the college at the lower rank of Caesar. Constantine took no notice of this snub. The next few years were all about preparation. For Constantine had sensed that the winds of fortune had changed again, and they were blowing against his ally Maxentius. Constantine prepared for war against his brother-in-law by shoring up support in his base, the northwest quadrant of the empire, mostly by just crushing the Frankish tribes that were always causing trouble up there. But as he prepared for trouble, fate would make it double. Maximian would just not stay retired. The allure of power was too much for him, and recognizing that Constantine was now the man to beat, Maximian waited until Constantine was away, then donned the imperial purple, spread a rumor that Constantine was dead, and began functioning as an emperor for the third time. It went about as well as it had been before. Constantine, very much alive, returned, roundly defeated Maximian, who did not enjoy as much support as he had imagined. Maximian died shortly thereafter. Sources differ as to whether he died by suicide or execution. But the Augustus Emeritus of the West would finally stay that way. Forever. More important for our story, however, is that during this battle with Maximian, Constantine had a vision. 
or at least it was probably during this battle, dates get a bit fuzzy here due to Constantine's talent for propaganda. You have perhaps heard the famous story that Constantine looks up and sees a vision in the sky of a cross and hears a heavenly voice say, In this sign, conquer. Constantine then painted the sign of the cross on his soldiers' shields, won the battle, and attributed his victory to the Christian god whereupon he converted. It's a nice, tidy story, and if we overlook the fact that it is almost completely wrong, it's basically right. But this being a church history podcast, we alas cannot overlook the blatant wrongness of almost every detail. For starters, he supposedly had this vision at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which happened two years after the battle with Maximian that we are discussing. Moreover, surviving propaganda of the time indicates that Constantine did have a vision at this battle all right, but interpreted it as a sign of favor from Sol Invictus, that unconquered sun god who has been hanging around the margins of Roman society and of our narrative. So what is going on here? Simple. Constantine is retconning his own conversion. Here is what probably happened. Constantine had a vision of some kind of solar phenomenon in 310 that he interpreted as a sign of favor from the one true God. He wasn't yet sure who this one true God was, but at least for political purposes, he interpreted that deity as Sol Invictus. Two years later, Constantine had a dream in which Christ appeared to him, telling him to mark his shields with a Christian symbol, by which point in time Constantine came to identify the Christian God as that one true God. He then retroactively interpreted his solar vision in 310 as coming from Christ, which both fit his new theology and explained away the embarrassment to his newfound church that he had been proclaiming the favor of Sol Invictus just two years prior. Which means that there are actually two sponsors for this episode, because The Road to Nicaea is also brought to you by Ambivalent Dreams. Communicating with God is the best! You can get clarity of purpose, new joy, maybe even an exciting message to take back to your followers. But have you ever wished God was less clear? Maybe those strict gospel demands are just too much and you need something a bit vaguer to water down. Or maybe you have an army with lots of different gods and whichever one spoke to you, everybody else is just going to be mad that it wasn't their god. Your subconscious has the solution. Try Dreams, the perfect receptacle for cool but not quite clear messages from the other side. With Dreams, favorable interpretations are a cinch. Pick the parts you like. Retroactively reinterpret them when the winds of fortune shift. Enjoy the power of multivalent symbols like sun that can keep all of your prickly soldiers happy. Confuse your loved ones by telling them about that one time you dreamed you were a shape-shifting wizard. Learn about systemic misogyny while you sleep when you shapeshift into a woman and get catcalled all day. Defy the patriarchy from the comfort of your bed when you enter a super-secret museum that is for men only, then shapeshift into a woman in the middle of it just to make everybody mad. Regret your somnolescent sass when you awaken an ancient guardian of the museum, whom you barely escape from, but who steals a lock of your hair and uses it to make a clone of you. 
be both anxious about the fate of this clone daughter you have, and also kind of impressed. I, I mean, this is basically like that episode of Doctor Who where he gets a clone daughter, right? Then quiver in fear as ominous music plays and the dream ends. You can get all that out of dreams. At least a, a friend, yeah, a friend told me you can get that, yeah. Dreams, making mornings weird and nights even weirder since 298,000 B.C. All of this raises one of the $10 million questions in the field. Just how sincere was Constantine's conversion to Christianity? When dealing with such a masterful and frequent propagandist, is it possible to determine if there was any sincerity underneath his public professions of faith? As so often in ancient history, we can't know for sure. Constantine didn't leave behind a diary of his private thoughts for us to peruse. However, most of the evidence points toward at least some degree of sincerity. Remember that Christians made up only 10% of the empire at this point, and there's a whole bunch of Christians who believe that their faith prohibited them from military service. For an emperor constantly trying to secure his place in the Tetrarchy against all kinds of rivals, Christians weren't exactly an advantageous group to court. Now, he could try to win some sympathy points by siding with Christians hurt during the Great Persecution, but that didn't require him to convert, it just required him to be tolerant of them. But by the end of his reign, and possibly from fairly early on, Constantine pushed policies not just tolerating, but favoring Christians, which may also indicate sincere personal belief. Occasionally, people will point to Constantine's deathbed baptism as evidence that he was insincere. In other words, if he didn't even bother to get baptized until death, he couldn't really have meant it. But as we have already noted, that's actually a pretty common practice in antiquity, and it usually indicated pious fear of post-baptismal sin. It was not a sign of lukewarm waffling. But if Constantine was a somewhat sincere Christian, his theology was primarily one of victory and unity. He had come to know Jesus Christ as the one who brought him victory in battle, and he believed that these victories were crucial to preserving imperial unity. And in the chaotic aftermath of Diocletian's Tetrarchy, unity was in short supply. After all, he had just spent his first six years in the Tetrarchy resisting rebellions and coups, and he would spend the next 12 years in much the same fashion. To very briefly summarize the next 12 years of fighting, after Maximian died, his son decided to follow in his father's footsteps. Maxentius went to war against Constantine and holed up in Rome to outlast his rival in a protracted siege battle. But Maxentius had miscalculated his support in Rome, like father, like son, for Maxentius's support was fraying under the pressure of heavy taxes that the denizens of the imperial capital were not accustomed to paying. So Maxentius, in a bid to increase support, went to the Sibylline Priestess, a sort of Roman version of the Oracle of Delphi. 
and the Sibylline priestesses promised that the true enemy of Rome would be destroyed in the upcoming battle. Emboldened by this prophecy, Maxentius left the protection of Rome to fight Constantine's army at the Milvian Bridge. At this point, Constantine has his dream of Christ in which Jesus tells him to paint a Christian symbol called the Cairo on his soldier's armor. The Cairo is kind of a monogram of the Greek letters Chi and Rho superimposed on each other. Basically, it looks like a big X with a slanted P running through the middle. The symbol appears to have worked, for Constantine crushed Maxentius, and in the chaos of the retreat, Maxentius fell into the river and drowned. Constantine no doubt rejoiced in the superiority of his deity's battle predictions, while Maxentius ruefully reflected on the ambiguous wording of the Sibylline oracle that he had placed such faith in. That left only Constantine and his erstwhile colleague and perpetual frenemy Licinius in the Imperial College. Together they redivided the empire between them, with Licinius taking the eastern half and Constantine the west. Licinius married Constantine's half-sister to cement the deal, and both emperors formally agreed to cease the persecution of Christians begun under Diocletian, at long last bringing the horrors of the great persecution to an end. But Constantine was not satisfied with that. He had ambitions of ruling the entire empire, and he wasn't about to let Licinius prevent that. As with his faith, we aren't completely clear as to Constantine's motivations. Naked ambition is, of course, one option. It's been a powerful motivator for rulers in every age. It is also possible that Constantine had seen how much chaos was caused by the Tetrarchy and decided that it was no good for the Empire. There was just no way to prevent four power-hungry emperors from fighting against each other, Rome needed a single imperial family calling the shots. Whatever the reason, Constantine found pretexts for war with Licinius that would allow him to bring all of the empire under one rule. His rule, naturally. In 316, he accused Licinius of being behind a plot to have him assassinated. He then invaded the Eastern Republic and, after a few brilliantly executed battles, negotiated with Licinius to absorb most of the Eastern territory. Constantine left Licinius alone for about four years afterwards, before deciding to provoke him again by, accidentally, sending some of his soldiers into Licinius's territory during a military campaign. Licinius had also begun to take steps to disfavor Christianity, which Constantine hammered on in his speeches and rhetoric. It all came to a head in 324, when Constantine invaded the East again, proclaiming himself the liberator of the Christians from Licinius's oppression, and of all good Roman citizens from Licinius's generally poor rulership. There was no real military contest. Constantine crushed Licinius's armies on the battlefield, trapped him in the city of Byzantium, which he promptly conquered. And after briefly fleeing to the city of Nicomedia, Licinius surrendered to Constantine, finally the unchallenged master of the entire Roman world. Which Constantine was for about all of five minutes, until Licinius decided that maybe a challenge would be a good idea. 
he started trying to draw up support for a comeback with the help of the Gothic tribes of modern-day Germany. Constantine was now dealing with a third comeback attempt from a recently deposed emperor, and he was in no mood for it. Licinius was arrested and hanged in short order, after which Constantine could take a long, deep breath and survey his domain as the now truly unchallenged master of the entire Roman world. Respected by all, and more importantly, obeyed by all which Constantine may have been, except in the case of the church. Ever since his battle with Maximinus, Constantine had begun to weigh in on the affairs of the church in the West. He had made it very clear that what he wanted above all was unity. Unity in worship is what kept the church, like his army, together. Unity is what ensured the one true God would continue to grant him victory. Unity is what might give a very tired Constantine a chance to rest after almost 20 years of relentless campaigning and politicking. And what were all the bishops doing with each other? Fighting, schisming, and generally making a mess of things, of course. So now Constantine must turn his attention to his newfound family of faith and particularly the growing tension between Arius and Alexander that has erupted into empire-wide controversy. Next time, we'll cover Constantine's religious policy within the church and how the bishops reacted to their newfound friend in high places. But who will be influenced by whom? And how will the church be changed as it comes ever closer to its destination on the road to Nicaea? This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.